Eating disorders are a group of conditions in which negative beliefs about eating, body shape and weight accompany behaviours, including restricting eating, binge eating, excessive exercise, vomiting and laxative use. Eating disorders are common among adolescent girls and increasing numbers of adolescent boys are also now being diagnosed. They're associated with high mortality and morbidity, but international evidence shows patients often face delays or difficulty accessing appropriate treatment. We recently published three articles in the education section of the BMJ on eating disorders in younger people. A clinical update looking at an approach to diagnosis and management of young people with eating disorders, a practice pointer looking at some of the more difficult aspects of communication and developing a therapeutic relationship with both young people and their families, and also a what your patient is thinking by a young person and their parent affected by an eating disorder. I'm delighted to be joined today by three of our authors of the Clinical Update and Practice Pointer, who are going to be talking to us a little bit about these articles. Dr. Helen Bould, Welcome Doctoral Training Fellow and Registrar in Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Department of Psychiatry and at the University of Oxford. Welcome Helen. Thank you, hello. Dr Claudia Newbegin, a GP in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Hi Claudia. Hello. And Dr Anne Stewart, Consultant Child and Adolescent Psychiatrist and Joint Clinical Lead for CAMS Eating Disorder Service in Oxen and Bucks. Hello. Hi Anne, hi. Hi. Thanks very much for um, joining us. Um, so maybe, Claudia, if we begin with you, um, in the article you discuss how eating disorders as a term encompasses obviously quite a r- wide range of different uh, clinical presentations. Maybe can you, maybe if we start by telling us a little bit more about this and w- what ways a young person or their sort of worried relative might present to health services? Um, yes, so I think as we've highlighted in the article, a number of different ways um, are possible. And you do get people who come to see you, particularly a worried parent, um, and sometimes they come alone or sometimes they come with their child, um, saying, I wonder if I have an eating disorder or I wonder if my child has an eating disorder. But certainly in my experience, um, what is more common is people coming with other worries or with non-specific worries. So, um, um, I have had a patient who actually um, presented with difficult to manage asthma, um, and I saw her on a couple of occasions. Um, we were talking about she was talking about being short of breath when uh, walking up the stairs to classes, and I was quite worried about her asthma. And then I think it was the second or third consultation, she started talking about her weight, um, and that is not uncommon. So people presenting with difficult to manage chronic diseases um, you should be thinking about a possible eating disorder um, a more typical one would be diabetes that's very difficult to manage um, or inflammatory bowel disease um, but also as well as people presenting with chronic diseases that are difficult to manage they can just prevent present with physical symptoms that are actually due to the eating disorder as opposed to a, phys- uh, a different physical illness so um, uh, it used to be in the criteria that um, a lack of menstruation was diagnostic for uh, anorexia. That's no longer in the criteria, but of course it would be an important thing to think about if someone presents to you with amenorrhea. 
Um, GI symptoms, also um, gastrointestinal symptoms, are, are, are something that you might see. So very typical thing now is people thinking, oh, may I, maybe I've got celiac disease or gluten intolerance, um, or I, I always get diarrhea when I go to my grandmother's. It, it's something I've actually heard in a patient that, that who turned out eventually to have uh, anorexia. Um, so physical symptoms, chronic disease, um, and the other thing, um, psychological symptoms. Um, so uh, psychological symptoms are very uh, common such as uh, psychological features are very common um, so depression or anxiety these these um, young people presenting with these kind of problems we should be thinking about asking about their eating anyway but also with a view to uncovering an eating disorder so um, asking when they last ate what their weight is doing um, that's very important and, and might might uncover someone with an eating disorder I suppose what's important about that point you make is that, and and one of the points that the author, the what your patient is thinking that the young person affected was that because her weight hadn't dropped significantly or, or was within normal range, she really didn't consider herself or think about having an eating disorder. And maybe that's something as clinicians, you know, we focus a lot on weight, but actually it's all these other presentations and and very different, much more subtle symptoms that are actually kind of pointing that that should make us consider an eating disorder. Yes. It's really important yep. for the GP to be alert um, to the possibility of an eating disorder because if the young person can get help early on, then the, the whole treatment process is, is much easier. And it's, I think another point that's worth making is it's very difficult for people to go to their GP. Um, something that was mentioned, I think, actually by the patient's mother um, was that GPs should be aware that by the time a family presents to a GP worried about something, particularly with an eating disorder, is they've, they've probably been through a huge amount before that and that it's a very difficult thing for them to do. And they will have probably tried loads of other things, tried, discussed it with various people, looked online. Um, and actually, by the time they get to their GP, they're, they're very much at the end of their tether. And, and, and you have to bear that in mind. Recognise that it, it really is a bit a big step to, to come and discuss it. And actually, that's, that's one of the... Um, things that that happened with um with the author of the what your patient's thinking it was actually her mother who presented the gp first before even um you know maybe discussing it with with her daughter is that is that something that happens quite commonly yes oh yes definitely um i you see it actually with all aspects of adolescent um uh, healthcare that often a parent will come in um, concerned about something and talk to you about it and then you you're, you always respond with please bring them in and then um, again this is something we talk about in our articles just as a general pointer when you're, you're dealing as a GP with adolescents is to try and establish with them how they like to be contacted whether they're happy to do everything with their parents you, it's, it's good practice to um, in any consultation with a with a, a young person to, to try and speak to them alone and give them an opportunity to speak to you about things that they wouldn't be comfortable speaking about in front of their parents and so that's something to think about and then just really practically how are you going to contact them are they happy to have letters sent to their home um have they got a mobile number of their own that you could contact them on you have to be careful obviously with um limits of confidentiality and also competence um so you have to to, to be careful particularly with very young adolescents to, to know where to tread the line but if, if you do everything with, with um, as much as possible with the young person's consent and knowledge and try and encourage them to share things with their parents um, that makes everything a lot easier in the long run 
Uh, Anne, it, this obviously seems to be a particular problem with eating disorders emerging um, during adolescence. Is there any sort of thinking or evidence about why this is? Well, you're right that the average age of onset for anorexia nervosa is 15 years, and the average age of onset for bulimia is a little later at 17. So adolescence is a particularly high-risk time. But in general, adolescence is a time of immense change. So a young person's got to cope with all the biological changes of puberty, as well as changes in social expectations. They have to become independent. They learn to achieve at school. They're developing relationships and just sort of generally finding out who they are. And these developmental tasks can be stressful for some adolescents. So there's actually a range of mental health problems that become more common in adolescents, depression, anxiety, etc. But but some young people may be particularly vulnerable to developing an eating disorder. So there are specific risk factors, which includes having a family history of eating disorders. So we know that there is a, a highly genetic component in eating disorders. And then other things like having a history of perfectionism, low, felt, low self-esteem, can also make um, young people uh, more at risk from developing an eating disorder rather than perhaps another mental health problem. And then we, we know that eating disorders are um, around 10 times more common in females. So, so females are particularly at risk. And if we think about females going into puberty, they start to change their body shape in a way that's very much out of keeping with the ideal body shape, which might be put forward in the media, social media, models, etc. So, so the very fact of going into puberty can be stressful for some girls. Um, and particularly girls that go into puberty early. So there is, is evidence to show that early puberty is a risk factor. Um, and um, young girls can become quite unhappy with their body shape and start to diet as a way of taking control. Um, and then that can develop into an eating disorder. So, so I think generally what we're saying is that anorexia nervosa can occur below puberty and in early adulthood or, or later on, but the period of adolescence is a particularly high-risk age group. So it's it's the group that we need to be particularly alert in. Mm. And obviously you emphasise there that it has um, sort of historically and is still kind of more commonly associated with adolescent girls, but you also mentioned the article that it is increasingly being recognised and diagnosed amongst um, amongst young uh, young men and boys as well. Is is this something that's important for non specialists to bear in mind and consider, Claudia? Um, yes, I mean the short answer to that is yes, <laughs> um, uh, because as a non-specialist, if if you don't recognise it in boys, then they may not get diagnosed at all, or at least it may be a very delayed diagnosis. Um, so yes, non-specialists should definitely be aware of that. I mean, we we do think that the prevalence is higher in girls, probably five to ten times higher, but um, anecdotally, at least, it's increasing amongst boys um and certainly to my mind that fits intuitively with the way um the male physique is now perceived in in popular culture the much more emphasis on physical attributes physical perfection in men in the way that sort of has been happening um with women for, for, for many years um so um so yes you must consider it 
And just can I just add a couple of points there that that sometimes it isn't recognised till a little bit later on in in boys, um, and therefore can be quite severe by the time it presents. So it's it's important to be really alert that this can happen in males and may present in different ways. So it may present initially as over exercise, um, so that the um, the the young man is is exercising ex- excessively but not eating enough calories to to actually continue to to gain weight normally um, in puberty. Um, so it's just to be on the alert for those slightly more unusual symptoms as well. And actually, we, a little while ago, we published an article looking at exercise addiction. And maybe people were thinking, so wh- wh- where's the line then? When does it become sort of an eating disorder? And as you've said there, it would be if someone wasn't taking, you know, was both doing the excessive exercise, but also not taking enough calories um, to kind of sustain. That. Yes, exactly. I'm feeling very unhappy with that. With their appearance and their and their body as well, I guess, which is the other sort of central feature. And we were also thinking that um, because eating disorders are sort of perceived as being a thing that happens to women and girls, it might be even harder for a um, an adolescent man to present and say this is something that he was finding um, problematic. One of the stark things that you mentioned in the article is that death rates are six times higher in patients um, with anorexia nervosa, which I certainly found um, surprising. What what are the main causes of this increased sort of morbidity and, and I presume, uh, well, mortality and the morbidity, which I presume is also associated? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really important to highlight because I think sometimes um, eating disorders get a, get a sort of press that it's somehow um, teenage girls being a bit silly and getting carried away with diets and wanting to look like pictures that they've seen in magazines and actually um, they're really serious illnesses from both a psychiatric point of view and from a physical health point of view. Um, In in that big um, meta-analysis that we quote, um, about one in five of those early deaths is due to suicide. Um, so that just really um, highlights the importance of when you're seeing someone with an eating disorder thinking more widely about um, their mental health um, and assessing um, for any comorbid depression or anxiety and asking directly about thoughts of suicide or plans of suicide because this is something that's more common in people um, with an eating disorder. Um, it's it's slightly difficult from the um, study methodology to work out exactly what the what the cause of the rest of the um, increased mortality is due to, um, but there are obviously a lot of physical complications of um, eating disorders, not least on the cardiovascular system. So um, we know that people are more likely to suffer from arrhythmias, and then um, they're at risk of heart blocks, they're at risk of um, heart attacks, and so they're um, it's likely that some of the increased morbidity is due to that. And um, it's really important that um, GPs are thinking in their practice about um, monitoring the physical health of people with eating disorders to um, make sure that they're managing those appropriately. Um, I think... That, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, yes, that's a, such a, an important point for GPs. Uh, we, we discussed the recent NICE guidance um, that, that came out in May at our practice. And a lot of the guidance included there is about this looking after the physical health of, of the physical and mental health of people with anorexia. Because, of course, we have so many 
people who have anorexia who are not undergoing active treatment. Um, uh, so at, the, at the, the practice meeting, we, we were actually all able to identify each of us that had one or two patients that we were aware of that had anorexia or either sort of sort of relapsing anorexia um, or other eating disorders and who may have had treatment in the past but really were being left to primary care to manage. And we all felt that it was something, a need that we were not meeting, so thinking about um, bone health, um, thinking about mental health, um, asking about physical symptoms, um, uh, actually doing the sort of very basic things that we should be doing in people with, with ongoing anorexia such as pulse, blood pressure, uh, temperature, just to assess their, their, their physical health. Um, and, I, and I think that's just a really important point. And the fact that the mortality is so high just really brings it home to you. Yeah, I think the um, the other thing that um, is important to think about in terms of the increased mortality is that um, because the health problems of people with eating disorders often span both psychiatric and physical health services, there is a lot of there are a lot of transitions for them. There are a lot of potential handovers between different teams. And um, when that's done well, that can, work, um, that can work really well for people, but there, it sort of increases the risk that um, it isn't clear who's managing something or that things haven't been fully handed mm -hmm. over to the um, responsible team. So I guess it just really highlights the importance of how those transitions are managed um, and making sure there's really good communication between the different people who are involved in treatment with primary care as a kind of linchpin in that. Um, but often both paediatrics and child and adolescent mental health services will be involved. Um, and that's really important in, in keeping people safe. And, and talking about transitions, obviously, when we're talking about children, young people, we're also, it's not just a transition between sort of um, physical and mental health care, but also at some point thinking about the transition from between CAMs and adult services as well. Is that, is that really, is that important to be thinking about bearing in mind kind of early? Yeah, I think um, the transition between CAMs and adults is, is very important to do in as smooth a way as possible. I mean, I, ideally, the, the people that are referred into CAMs will be treated and discharged within CAMs, but there will be a few people that may need further treatment as an adult. Um, and it's ideal not to have a gap in services. So there needs to be very close coordination between CAMs and adult mental health services to make sure that um, the transition is as smooth as possible um, and is prepared for well because the, the general approach in adult services is going to be different. It's going to be a much more individual approach. The approach in CAMs is much more family-based. So there needs to be a smooth transition and a preparing um, for that change um, and to, to make sure that, that young people are taken up promptly into adult services. So that's really important in each area for there to be close coordination between the teams. Mm, I suppose just to kind of focus on that a little bit more, thinking about kind of this division, division of care, which, um, you know, uh, naturally kind of someone sort of will likely be presenting to primary care first. And Claudia, you've touched on the role of primary care in kind of both kind of recognition initially but then also the longer term sort of care of people who might have you know anorexia kind of yeah in the longer term I suppose what what is the role of primary care kind of in that early diagnosis and management and at what point should secondary care service become involved at what point do you think about referring on to secondary care? Um, yes, yeah, so I'll start with the first part of that question. Um, sort of, what what is uh, sort of up in terms of early diagnosis and management? Um, what is our role? Well, as always with the GP, your, your first um, your first 
thing to remember is that someone might be seriously ill, um, either physically or, or mentally. So from a physical point of view, um, yes, you might be thinking an eating disorder, but you need to think about um, important differential diagnoses. So diabetes, hyperthyroidism, uh, celiac, um, inflammatory bowel disease, all these things. Um, uh, and you need to be um, looking at just your, your normal, regular um, uh, things. So pulse, blood pressure, in particularly looking for postural hypotension if you're worried about someone who's very physically unwell from starving themselves. Um, temperature, um, uh is important as well. Um, so, so doing a, a proper physical assessment of someone in primary care is important. Thinking about have they got a different diagnosis or are they just seriously ill from starvation? Um, but also mentally, so um, are they suicidal? Doing all the things that we all do on a daily basis, but but not but 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 making sure that they are done well. Um, so just assessing someone's suicide risk. Um, and how these things are affecting their lives. Um, but, but also take, leaving aside someone who might be physically very unwell and you might be considering a, an admission either to paediatric or, or medical services, um, looking at their, the physical signs of an eating disorder is very important um, as a pointer towards how unwell they are, even if you're not thinking of an acute admission. Um, so obviously weight is, is, is a good thing to start with. Um, but um, beyond that, looking for muscle weakness, um, we talk about the sit-up and the squat-stand tests in our article. So that's um, a useful thing to be aware of. Um, beyond the physical, uh, beyond the examination, you might also think about blood tests and ECG um, because um, blood tests are helpful with ruling out important differentials. So, for instance, an, an ESR, um, because if it was raised, that might um, point you more towards an organic cause of weight loss um, or an ongoing infection. Um, but also electrolyte disturbance could be very important in someone who's purging. They can make themselves very unwell. Um, uh, an ECG can be important. Um, both um, just a low body weight can put you at risk of prolonged QT interval um, or, or, of course, um, hypokalemia. So there's lots of things to think about. But these are all things that we do generally in patients with other illnesses. So they're not alien to us, but it might be um, a, a leap of faith to start thinking about these sort of physical parameters in someone with an eating disorder. Um, well, the, the second part of your question was about when to refer, um, and, and I think this this is quite interesting. Uh, the, the NICE guidance, um, I think I, I can quote it, it says, uh, if eating disorder is suspected, refer immediately to a community-based age-appropriate eating disorder service. Um, I think... Um, I, I think Anne's going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, so I, just to, to be aware that to refer early, I think, is, is a take-home message here. Um, my personal experience is that it's quite difficult to refer directly to an eating disorder service, but um, that is something that, that is, is the ideal. Mm-hmm. And Anne, do you want to come in there maybe and tell us a little bit about what you might expect once this sort of age-appropriate um, eating disorder service becomes involved? What, what, would, what would their role be at this point? Um, well, first of all, just to say that there is evidence that the sooner eating disorders are treated, the better the outcome. 
Um, and in England at the moment, the, the government has increased funding for adolescent eating disorder services and developed guidelines for practice. So there are clear targets now for assessment and treatment. Now, this may not be the, the, cases, the case sort of throughout, but that's the ideal is to um, see young people referred to specialist services within four weeks for routine referrals and start treatments within four weeks uh, and within, within a week for urgent, for urgent referrals. Um, and we're encouraging um, GPs to refer within the early stages of the disorder because the, the evidence is that the sooner you treat, the better the prognosis. And is this along the lines of the sort of early intervention model like we've seen with early intervention in psychosis? Is, is it that sort of model that's being developed? Yes, in, in a sense it, it's similar, although of course eating disorders are more common than, than psychosis. Um, so it may be that the specialist services um, won't be able to actually treat everyone um, presenting at a very early stage, but, but actually doing an assessment and working out the best plan is very, really important to do as soon as possible. Um, and specialist eating disorder services will be using evidence-based treatment um, and will be e equipped to deliver the right services that um, produce the best outcome. And I think um, just go, coming back to uh, flogging, coming back to the, the GP thing here, while you're waiting um, for a referral, um, you can be getting on with the physical assessments that we were, we were talking about. So if, you, if you're not taking blood the first time you see someone, you can refer someone and then arrange to sort of see them again. So there's, there's lots that you can be doing while you're waiting if you have to wait a little bit longer than ideal. Mm -hmm. and, and once accepted and kind of accessing um, specialist services, what sorts of treatments could um, people and, and uh, young people and their families expect to be offered? Yeah. Well, the new, as um, Claudia was saying, the new NICE guidelines came out earlier this year and the key evidence-based treatment for young people is a family-based approach. Um, this, this was first developed at the Maudsley Hospital in London and is an approach in which parents are encouraged to help the young person re-establish normal eating. So the, the eating disorder is, is seen very much in a, as an illness which has taken over the young person. And in the first phase, the parents are encouraged to support and supervise all the meals, so almost as if they're, they're taking charge because the young person is, is unable or unwilling to, to do it. But, but as time goes on, the control is gradually handed back to the young person. And, and then in the final phase, other issues such as the adolescent learning to become independent again or any difficulties with family relationships may be addressed at that point. Um, so, so the parents are not seen as the cause but as a resource and um, they're very much in there helping the young person to recover. Um, so, so that would, um, family meetings would happen on a weekly basis, um, very often siblings are involved. Um, and and that's the approach that's recommended first line. But, but for those, and I was just sorry, going to yeah. chip in there, Anne, because I, yeah, um, it, it it is a, a really successful approach, and it works for about two thirds of the young um, people who um, have that. And the, um, it does put the put, put the parents sort of centre stage in terms of um, helping their young person to get better and thinking of their young person as being. Um, very much separate from their eating disorder. So some families and young people find it helpful to think of the eating disorder as, as having a sort of bullying voice um, that can be very loud, um, very dominant for the young person and very difficult for the young person to not do what the eating disorder wants them to do, which is to, to not eat and to be over-exercising or perhaps to be um, making themselves sick. Um, and the... Uh, family aren't aren't sort of ganging up on their 
on their um, son or daughter, but they are um, helping them to, to fight against that bullying voice. So that hopefully meant helps the parent to position themselves in a sympathetic and understanding point of um, position where they, they can see that the difficulty that their, um, their child is, is going through, but at the same time being really firm. Starvation isn't an option. Um, the young person needs to be, to be eating. Food is their medicine. They need to be getting back to um, a healthy weight. Um, and the um, specialist eating disorder services are really well placed to position parents to help um, them to do this because it is a really um, difficult, draining, um, exhausting process to go, to go through. Um, but they will be being supported in that with by specialist eating disorder services. Um, we've, we've given some resources um, online in our clinical update as well. And I think one particularly useful one is um, the Maudsley Parents website, which is um, from the people who developed that um, family-based treatment, and it um, sort of talks through specific um, scenarios that that parents have gone through with their young people and found particularly challenging, and offers them some advice and guidance to try and help them through and help them to manage it. Mm. And just of, uh, so, in terms I, of other treatment yeah. Yeah. Um, for those that either don't respond to a family-based approach or whether it's where it's not a, appropriate or maybe sometimes for an older adolescent where individual work might be more appropriate um, a specific form of CBT focused on eating disorders can be offered and, and this is um, highlighted in the NICE guidelines as a secondary treatment. So, so there is considerable evidence for this treatment in adults and some emerging evidence in the adolescent age group as well. Um, and this is a treatment where the therapist will work collaboratively with the young person to help them establish regular eating in the first um, phase and then address any concerns about weight and shape and other psychological difficulties and help the young person maintain a, a, a healthy um, lifestyle and um, maintain recovery. Is, is there a, ever any role for medication or, or even in very severe cases admission to, to, a, to a mental health um, or, or, or eating disorder unit rather than kind of in, in terms of acute physical health but if, if um, other kind of treatments haven't worked whether are there kind of uh, units sort of eating disorder residential units for young people with eating disorders? Yeah, I think this, this is a good point too. But uh, firstly, just regarding medication, uh, for anorexia nervosa, there's no specific medication recommended as a treatment for anorexia. Um, although, of course, if a young person um, suffers from depression alongside their eating disorder, they may be offered specific medication for the depression. But then in, in terms of um, young people who find it really hard to get well in the community, um, there, there are a couple of things. Some areas do offer... Um, home treatment teams where um, staff can go to the uh, family home and, and help in the process of, of refeeding, but that's, that's not available in all areas. Um, but it, it, it is also possible to admit young people to specialist adolescent units, either um, units that um, cater for a range of adolescents with mental health problems, or the, there are also some specific um, units that, are, that just deal with eating disorders. Um, and it's important to help the, the, the parent and the young person not to feel they failed if this is needed, but just to highlight that sometimes the disorder is so 
severe and entrenched um, that that actually more specialist and intensive help is needed to get the young person on track again. But the, the, the family will continue to be involved and will need to be involved again when the young person leaves hospital. Um, and the aim is to only keep them in the, the unit for as long as is, as is needed to, to get them back on track and um, minimising the you know the medical consequences, the severe medical consequences of their eating disorder. So it it can be very helpful in in, in certain cases. Is do eating disorder services have a similar um, issue with ch- child and adolescent sort of bed availability as there are kind of for other conditions? I know that that's obviously been in in the press and reported a lot recently. So yeah, um, I mean I think you're right that there is an issue that. Um, each area will have their local um, adolescent unit that they refer to um, as a general matter of course but sometimes there aren't enough beds um, and it, it is possible that young people may have to travel to other units um, and that is, a, that is a great shame because it, it's much more difficult for the family. Um, so that's not ideal at all. And I know that the, the government are, in the UK are, are thinking about this issue and working out how to, how to actually improve this situation. Um, but, but, but where a young person needs inpatient service, it's important to, to, to go for that. Um, and, you know, sometimes this may mean that the family has to travel. But having said that, um, we recommend, if at all possible, for the young person to be treated in the community. So the step to go into inpatient isn't taken lightly. Um, and ideally, that the treatment will happen entirely in the community. You know, that, that's, that's the best option. Just going back to the some of the reflections in the What Your Patient is Thinking article, and um, the young person there sort of talks about struggling to come to terms with her diagnosis and actually really not realising that perhaps despite she was going to services that she did actually have a diagnosis. Is, is this common in young people and, and is, is this perhaps sort of lack of insight, lack of awareness, something that can influence outcomes? Well, I think this is a really important issue, and the the, the what your patient is thinking article really highlights this. Um, that many young people do find it hard to accept the diagnosis at the start, and will often say, "Well, there's nothing wrong with me," even when they're patently very unwell, and their blood tests and their physical examinations show this. They will still find it hard to accept that they're unwell and they have a diagnosis of an eating disorder. But even if they do accept they've got an eating disorder they generally find it very hard to make changes, particularly at the beginning. And and actually a number of factors can help to maintain the disorder. So in, in the early stages of weight loss, the young, young person may actually feel initially quite good about themselves for having lost weight and may even get positive comments from peers or from, from other people. And so they may then continue to, to diet, uh, believing that they'll feel even better about themselves. However, the feeling of well-being reduces with further loss of weight, and then the young person actually starts to find it really difficult to eat normally. Um, And the physical changes with starvation can actually exacerbate this. Um, So, for example, uh, with starvation, um, there's um, very often a decrease in gastric motility, which makes it then quite hard to eat because um, the, the food stays in the stomach for longer, you feel quite full and bloated, and it's really hard to eat um, what you need to, to gain weight. Um, and then, uh, in, in addition, when young people are over-preoccupied with their eating weight and shape, they can start to um, 
carry out behaviours such as weighing themselves a lot or checking their bodies, looking in the mirror. And the more they do this, the more concern they get about their weight and shape. Um, and they may indeed feel their their fat or overweight, even though um, they're they're really underweight. So they perceive themselves differently and become very concerned and and preoccupied. Um, and then the the other thing that happens is that young people that are perhaps going through stresses in, in adolescence can find that the structure and routine of, of an eating disorder can actually be quite reassuring and feel quite safe um, and can help them avoid having to address other problems in their life, such as difficult relationships or problems at school, etc. So actually remaining within the safe structure of an eating disorder can be very reassuring and it can be then very hard to give it up. Um, so all these things can keep the eating disorder going um, and um, that that can make it quite hard to um, to engage the young person to recover. Um, and uh, I mean, in general, I mean, part of your question was about motivation to change and how that can affect recovery. Yes, it makes recovery easier if they are motivated. But actually, with the family-based approach, in the early stages, we're encouraging the parents to help the young person get over the problem anyway, even if there's no insight or motivation to change. So so that approach um, really uh, gives the, the parents the, the sort of responsibility to help, um, being aware that, that the young person is finding it very difficult. Because another thing that, that happens is that, that actually the young person becomes more, much more rigid in their thinking with, with starvation. Um, and in the article, um, we, we describe how there are changes in the brain with, with starvation you know, in eating disorders. So, so the young person is, can be very rigid, can be very um, resistant to change. Um, and, and this is where it's so important to engage the family to help them in an empathic and, and firm way to, to actually help their young person to, to get well. And another thing that the young person um, writing uh, the article mentions is um, social media and the role that played in maybe the development or maintenance of her illness. And I just wondered if there was any evidence yet or any thinking around the role of social media in eating disorders. and, and what what non-specialists or what GPs sh- should say or how they should approach a discussion about social media with um, their young young patients who, who who possibly have eating disorders? Yeah, so it's um it's obviously sort of relatively new that um, that social media has come into our lives. So in terms of robust um, research evidence, there isn't a huge amount. There are quite a lot of cross-sectional studies that suggest that there's a relationship between. Um, social media use and um, body dissatisfaction, feeling bad about your body. Um, But it's a bit difficult to tell which way around that goes, whether people who are feeling unhappy about the way they look are more likely to get involved in sort of looking things up on social media and um, that might make make it worse in turn. There's not a lot of longitudinal work. Um, There's one nice um, study from Holland where they Um, did look at people at baseline and then um, followed them up at 18 months and they found that more frequent use of social media um, amongst adolescents was associated with more body dissatisfaction 18 months later. So there is a bit of evidence that that social media might um, affect um, levels of body dissatisfaction. And I guess it's sort of uh, a new way of thinking about something that's been around for a long time. So we've we've had um, a much longer period of, of people being exposed to things like um, 
um, models in fashion magazines who are often also quite underweight and have been airbrushed and so forth. Um, and we and we know that um, being exposed to images like that does make does tend to make people feel more unhappy about the way they look. Um, but it's possible that social media, because it often um, relates to peers, might um, in some ways be actually even um, more negative because um, if you're looking at models in a magazine, you may be able to feel, well, they're quite different from me. But if you're looking at your friends posting pictures of themselves on Instagram, you might not be aware that they've sort of taken 50 photographs of themselves and then um, airbrushed and changed the lighting on the on the best photograph and then uploaded that one. And it might feel really um, much more um, negative that they that you may feel that they're looking much much better than than you feel. Um, and I guess the other thing to make people aware of is there are also um, websites out there which which aren't just um, sort of posting pictures of um, people looking um, very slim or underweight and highlighting the importance of appearance, but there are also websites where they're specifically encouraging um, eating disorders as a sort of lifestyle choice um, and giving young people um, advice about how to um, carry on with their eating disorder even when people around them are trying to help them to get better from it. So for example, um, giving advice about water loading by drinking a lot of water before going going along to be weighed so that it looks as though their weight um, is higher than it um, actually really is. Um, in terms of what a, a um, generalist or non-specialist could ask, I think um, it's just important to be kind of open and, and curious. You know, social media is changing all the time. I think Facebook is now really a bit outdated for um, teenagers that are um, using Instagram and probably other um, social media sites that we're not so aware of. So just exploring with them what, what they're whether they're spending whether they're spending time online, what sort of things they're they're doing online, um, and then maybe going a little bit further with them and thinking with them about how um, the time that they're spending looking at those sites makes them feel, whether they think it's um, helpful and making them feel better about themselves, or whether it might actually um, be doing the opposite and making them feel more negative about themselves. So I think. Um, may definitely be a factor and it certainly sounds like the what your patient is thinking article the um, young person very much feels that social media was was quite a big factor in in how she initially got on well mm. is was there anything else that you particularly wanted to um touch on that you felt like we haven't that we wanted to just um emphasize for, for the non-specialists but for gps um uh just to think about eating disorders just you know by listening to this article hopefully people will be more aware of it so just to consider it um if a young person presents to you with, with a, a wide range of symptoms and, and also just another um, final sort of take-home message is that the, the research shows that the prognosis is really quite good for adolescent eating disorders. If they're referred early and treated with the evidence-based treatments, um, they're, they're likely um, to get over their disorder. So at least um, around 60% will actually recover. That's uh, much better than the prognosis for those referred in adulthood. So I think the message is refer early um, and the outcome is likely to be good. Yeah, fantastic. So thanks very much, Helen. Thank you. Thanks, Claudia.
Thank you. And Anne. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you very much. Goodbye. You've been listening to Helen Bald, Claudia Newbegin and Anne Stewart talking about their education articles focusing on the diagnosis and management of eating disorders. They are now available on bmj.com alongside a What Your Patient Is Thinking article by a young person and her mother also affected by an eating disorder. That's all for this episode, but if you want to hear more of our podcasts, then they're available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to listen to our full back catalogue, then subscribe so you don't miss out on any, as we'll be back soon with more clinical content. That's all for now, though. Thanks very much for listening.